Um, <clears throat> this morning, uh, we have the privilege of having Zach Washburn here to preach uh, for us. For those of you who have been in our church a long time, you already know who Zach is. Um, Zach was part of our church, an elder in our church, a ruling elder, um, and he started seminary just after me. We preached together. He's preached in most of the locations that our church has moved through over the years um, and was an important part of our congregation, um, staying together, growing, being alive, uh, and, and really the only reason that I'm the pastor and not him is that I started seminary first. Um, that's really it, and I'm sorry for you that I won that race. Uh, you're going to see why. Um, <clears throat> Zach is a man of integrity. He leads his church in Corvallis, Oregon, with passion and dedication to Jesus. Um, his wife, Vanessa, is much better person than him, as most of you know. If you know them, he will admit it. But he follows in her footsteps really well uh, to try to be like her. They have four kids, uh, and they also uh, foster more kids in their house at various times. Uh, I told the previous service, um, the best thing that I can tell you about Zach is the most annoying thing about him Uh when we have these, we would have these long conversations about what it is that we should do, either in our individual lives or as a church. Zach would always be the one that would just be like, "Well, why don't we just simply do what Jesus has told us to do? It's very simple. We'll just do that thing." And it and it was so annoying is that it really is that simple for him. For the rest of us, it's like, how do we make that work in our lives? And for Zach, it's just hear and obey, and that's real. That is authentic. It is, he leads in that way with integrity, with love for Jesus. Um, and it is challenging for those around him and also inc an incredible blessing because he's an eager servant to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, and to top it all off, he's a really good preacher, which you're about to hear. So welcome, Zach Washburn. Um, and I, I trust that you'll benefit from what he has to say with the word he brings us. So um, getting introduced like that is exactly as embarrassing the second time around. I'm going to say it's good to see you all and um, just trust that you know how inadequate the word good is in that sentence. Um, Let's pray. Father, help. Um, we need your word in ways we don't even realize. Uh, to uh, heal diseases we don't know we have and meet needs we have never noticed we are carrying. Uh, we need your spirit to dwell in us, to uh, fill us with all your fullness, with a, um, a love we never dared dream of. And um, we need you. Uh, we 
need you. So be our good father. And, um, give us what we need. We're asking. In Jesus' name, amen. So we live in this time and place where um, we can track how following Jesus uh, continues to push us to the margins of the larger culture we're a part of. Um, we, can, we can know, we can experience that uh, marching to the beat of Jesus' drum puts us out of step with society. I have no idea what response that evokes in you. Uh, but the point I want to make is that um, us being on the margins is not an accident of history. Us being on the margins is now and always has been God's design for his people. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm actually just going to say that. Um, and if you want to challenge me on it, please come talk to me afterwards. I love talking about the Bible, especially when I know I'm right. Uh, <laughs> Anthony and I really are almost the same person. Like, I've got a little more facial hair and a little more paunch. And, um, you know, we both married people who tell us how to actually live well. Uh, because uh, it is God's design for us to be on the margins, um, while we may feel destabilized and confused, bewildered about being pushed there, um, God, in his grace, filled his word to bursting with counsel and encouragement and models for how to live well on the margins, how to practice faithfulness as outsiders, as sojourners, as exiles in this world that was meant to be and will one day be our home but is not right now. Um, and so while we could really open the Bible to any page and find counsel for how to live well on the margins, we're going to look at uh, a book of the Bible that takes place in the, the historical exile of God's people when they were thrown out of the promised land and taken to Babylon. We're going to look at the opening chapters of the book of Daniel. Um, if you've got a Bible or you just want a break from screen time, you can get your Bible out and follow along. Um, and as we see what Daniel has to teach us about living well in the margins, I am, because it's contractually required, going to make three points. Uh, the first of which is, there is a God above who cares about those below. There is a God above who cares about those below. Um, I'm going to read for you the, the first of many in the book of Daniel of these grand theological statements of the, the, the massive, incomprehensible nature of God. So Daniel says in chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 20, there is no chapter 20 of Daniel, don't go looking for that. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Uh, Daniel is declaring his belief that there is a God above who is wise and mighty and sovereign. Sovereign just means utterly in charge. 
that God runs this place. It might feel out of control to you, but that feeling is a liar. You're not in control. He is. God is wise. He knows what is good. You might be confused. He isn't. God is mighty. He is able to do whatever is good. You might know what to do, but just not have the strength. God never lacks in strength. And God is sovereign. He works all things in his universe together for good. There is a God above. We can look around at the world and we can get the impression that the the center of gravity, the great powers of the world are Jeff Bezos or Joe Biden or President Xi in China or, you know, Google that knows everything about us down to, you know, our underwear size. But all of that is under the God above. He is over all of it. All the other centers of cultural and political and economic and social power that beckon to us under God are just illusions. They are so fleeting. Morning mists, we will blink and they will be no more. But not God. God is above. And he is the one that counts. He is the one that matters. There is a God above it all. Which means maybe the most important question you can ask is, what sort of God? What is this God like? And the the natural thing to do is look around at the centers of power that we can actually see and project that onto God. Uh, Mark Twain, one of my favorite totally reprobate authors, said it this way. He said, God made man in his image, and man, being a gentleman, has been returning the favor ever since. We make God in our image. Instead of living out his character in our little human existence, we take our character or the character of whichever person we think is most influential and make that our version of God. So we think of whoever the most powerful person is we can think of, and we go, well, they're way too important to care about me or have any time for me. Surely God is too. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, this God above cares about those below. Back to Daniel 2. I'm going to reread what we read and then continue through 23. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I will give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You see that? Daniel went from God is wise to God gives wisdom to God gave wisdom to me? The God above cares about me below? Friends, that is the true character of God. That he is infinite and intimate, powerful and personal. That the God above, he leverages his need of absolutely nothing to draw near to you who have absolutely nothing to offer. 
The clearest picture of this God in all the Bible is Jesus on earth. And in one place in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life on earth, Jesus speaks directly about his own heart, the very core of his being, at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus says, come to me. And then listen to who he tells to come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now, if we were making God in our own image, we would expect him to say, come to me, you mighty and momentous. Come to me, you important and impressive. Come to me, whoever can make the biggest donation to my campaign. But not Jesus. Jesus asks specifically for the people who are too worn out to bring him anything useful because Jesus has no desire to use you. He just wants to be with you. So Jesus says, come to me, you defeated and despondent. Come to me, you outcast and overcome. Come to me, you meek and marginalized. Come empty. I am the God who cares enough to make you full. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There is a God above who cares about you, no matter how far below you may be, no matter how much of an outsider. The God above cares about those below. Which means the thing that you need to do, the one thing that you need to do to live well on the margins, to be faithful in exile, is to trust him. When Jesus was asked, what are the works of eternal life? How do we live well? He said, trust me. And the people asking said, trust you to do what? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Two-word sentence. Trust me. That's the whole game. There is a God above who cares about you below. Trust him. That's it. But how? I mean, is it, is it really as simple as at some point in your life, You walk down the aisle and pray a prayer and memorize John 3.16 and then go about your business? No, no, no. You see, second point, trust in the God above who cares about us below demands daily practice. It, It is not an intellectual statement, but a habit. It's not so much a belief as a life. Trust in the God above who cares about the lows below demands daily practice. Uh, raise your hands if you're at least somewhat familiar with the book of Daniel. You don't have to like, be able to describe it. I'm not going to call on anybody. Okay. So most of the book of Daniel is divided up half and half between like Sunday school stories, right? Things that Jerry Bruckheimer would make a movie out of, right? Lion's dens and fiery furnaces and crazy encounters with powerful people. And then the other half is these weird 
visions that Daniel has that make you think like, you know, I really need something straightforward and grounding. I'm going to go read Revelation. But none of that is the bedrock of a life of faith. The starting point of a life of faith doesn't come in any of the titanic clashes or, you know, acid trips. The bedrock happens at a meal. So the story of Daniel starts, uh, uh, Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, you may know them by their uh, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are kidnapped as teenagers, swiped right out of the youth group, and taken to Babylon to be re-educated and assimilated into Babylonian culture. Think like what we, you know, with obviously perfect intentions as Americans, did to native children, taking them away from their tribes and trying to teach them to be good Americans. Right? That's what's going on here. Right? Right down to these guys all being given new names that are meant to honor Babylonian gods, give them fully Babylonian identities. This is come away from the margins, that backwater, Jerusalem, and into the center where the power is, where the influence is, where the comfort and security and prestige lie. And they, they are being drawn in, and they know that if they are going to keep trusting in the God above and in him alone, having the, the right statement of faith, believing the Apostles' Creed, is not going to cut it. And so what they do is they, they form history's first life transformation group. And then they agree on a rule of life. You guys learned about rule of life in Lent? Amy is nodding. Amy learned about rule of life in Lent. Did anybody else? Come on. Okay. Now there's like four people who remember. Right? They, and the, the rule of life that they choose is that they are not going to eat the sumptuous feasts that are put in front of them day in and day out. Right? So they're, they're a part of a large number of kidnapped teenagers who are brought to be retrained and they are fed like you would not believe, right? But, chapter 1, verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, the, the reasons behind uh, Daniel and the other three choosing the food are somewhat unclear and unimportant for our purposes here. The point is that they chose a a daily, humdrum, mundane practice of faith. That at every meal, they would trust not in the culture around them and all the goods that it could provide, but in God to provide instead. When they were served filet mignon, they would limit themselves to carrot sticks and cucumber slices because God above, who cared about them below, was enough. They formed a rule of life so that the life around them wouldn't end up ruling them. That's the purpose of the rule of life that you guys learned about in Lent. And I I don't want to belabor this point because I know you've worked on this a lot. I want to maybe reinforce or add to it a little bit. And I want you to see that they don't just choose a discipline that uh, rubs against their personal selfish sinfulness. They, they chose a discipline that also created friction with the culture they lived in. 
They deliberately chose a rule of life that would turn them away from the center where all the seemingly good stuff was and nudge them to the margins. They were going to come to meals three times a day and have to say, no, we're not participating. No, we're not being taken in. We're doing this instead. You need a rule of life so that the life around you doesn't rule you, which means that your rule of life has to be in tension with the world around you. It has to deliberately make you live against the grain of the culture you're immersed in. So um, take, you guys, one of the disciplines was gratitude. Amy's not allowed to nod. Somebody else, give me some feedback here. Anthony, you don't count either. Seriously, guys. I already made jokes about Presbyterians in the first service. Nodding is allowed. The Holy Spirit permits it in church. It's not unholy. Okay. So you, guys, you learn about gratitude, that thankfulness is a, a godly and beautiful thing that will give your life new depth. What if you went beyond that, that practice of being grateful to people who have already served you to going out of your way to depend on people and put yourself in their debt? You created extra occasions for gratitude. You stopped asking the question that I automatically ask myself, which is, can I do this on my own? And instead, you started asking, who could help me with this? Who could I owe? Who could I become grateful to? Now, that would not only be trusting in the God above who teaches you to be grateful. It would be moving away from the the very Western God of independent individualism. To to use my my youngest, Claire's words as a two-year-old, I do it my own self. Right? It would mean I, I no longer want to grow up to be Daniel Boone or John Wayne or the perfect mom who's always got it together and her kids behave and she has like 40,000 calories of healthy homegrown snacks in her purse. And instead, I'm going to be the mom who's like, I forgot diapers. Can anybody give me a hand? On purpose. Because that'll not only put me in friction with my own ego, but with the prevailing winds of the culture I live in. You need a rule of life that creates that friction, that puts you in tension, that that forces you to trust in the God above and not in the whole pantheon of gods below. Trust in the God above requires daily practice. I promise not to belabor this point, and then I did. I'm going to skip the other five disciplines that you guys learned, mostly because I can't remember what they are right now. Let's move on to what this results in. The, The third point that I want to make about living well on the margins, is that that kind of trust in the God above reveals his presence below. Trust in the God above reveals his presence below. Now, I want to be clear. God is present. Jesus promised to be with us always to the end of the age, not just when we're doing exceptionally well at trusting him. And Jesus keeps all of his promises. So he is with us, but most of the time we're not aware of it because we can only see his presence by faith. We can only perceive him if we first 
trust him. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they learn this in Daniel chapter 3. Right, a little bit of a backstory for those of you who didn't grow up in Sunday school. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the very center of worldly power, decides, you know what, I'm actually not powerful enough, which is what centers of worldly power do. And he builds a 90-foot golden statue of himself, as one does. And he demands that everybody in the empire fall down and worship him whenever the orchestra plays. And so the orchestra starts playing, and everybody in the empire except... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall down and worships him. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, you, you're out of step. You're trying to live in the center, but you're actually from the margins. I know who you are. I'll burn you alive. And he explains to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exactly what he intends to do. And he lights the fire in front of them, just, you know, for dramatic effect. And this is what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, you're not actually the center. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did you hear that? The trust there? Our God above is wise enough to know what's good. He is mighty enough to save us from the fire and sovereign enough that we trust him whether he saves us from the fire or not. No matter what, we trust not in your power to devour us, but in the God above's power to deliver us. No matter what, we have no idea what's going to happen next. But we're already trusting in God. Don't we want it to be the other way around? Don't we want it to be like God proves everything is going to be all right? And then we trust him? Right? I'll stay married to her if you can prove that things will get better. I'll try and love my difficult neighbor if you can prove right now that they'll repent of all the misery they've caused me and come to church and sit next to me and prove what a great evangelist I am. I'll fight for justice in this way if you can tell me right now, if you can demonstrate that doing so will work out smoothly and put me on the right side of history. Then I'll trust you. God does not work like that. Faith does not work like that. It's only actual trust in the God above, not in him doing what you want, but in him that reveals his presence below. The kind of trust that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are showing right here. And that's exactly what happens because of that trust. After that trust, they become aware of the God who has been with them the whole time. Starting in verse 21. Then these three were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took them up. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, 
Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. They are such good counters. He, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. All of a sudden, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can see what was always true, which is that they are not alone. Another man, a son of God, is with them. Trust in the God above reveals his presence below. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Trust in the God above reveals his presence below. Friends, the world teams with gods that will happily lie to you and promise, trust me, and you'll never go into the fire in the first place. Pay $200,000 for this education and you'll never be unemployed. The world overflows with gods that say, yeah, I'll send you into the fire, but it'll be a fire really worth walking through, a sacrifice really worth making. You can search as long as you want. You can look as hard as you like. In, of all the gods, in all the places, you will only find one who goes into the fire with you, who goes into the fire for you. Of all the gods out there, of all the possible highest priorities, only Jesus is honest enough to look you in the eye right at the beginning and say, there are flames ahead. I'm going to take you further from the center, out into margins you didn't even know existed. And of all the gods and all the places, only Jesus loves you enough to say, I'll be leading you there. I'm going first. I've been in these fires before. And of all the gods and all the places, only Jesus is strong enough to carry you through every fire with your hair unsinged and your cloak unburnt and not the faintest whiff of smoke left on you. Only Jesus who though he was in the form of God above, willingly emptied himself and came below for you. 
Only Jesus, who though he was the radiance of the glory of God above, came down not into the centers of power, but onto the margins to find the meek and the helpless like you. Only Jesus himself, who entered into the very fires of hell on your behalf and battered down the gates and came back out with the only treasure that ever mattered to him, you and me. Friends, the God above will not meet you in the palace, but he will meet you in the flames. He will not come to you in statues of gold. He already came to you on a cross of wood. Jesus and Jesus alone is trustworthy. So trust him. It's the whole game. It's the whole of living well. In the margins or anywhere. Jesus is the God above who came up below to love you. Trust him. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We give you our offerings and we know that they are absolutely nothing you need. That we have nothing to trade, nothing to barter, and yet you love us anyway. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are in spite of who we are. Thank you for that. Thank you that we will never enter a fire that you haven't been in already. Thank you that even when we, in a cowardly grasping for comfort, dodge the flames, you hold on to us still. Thank you that you are with us always until the end when you will be revealed before us in the fullness of your glory. Amen.